Osbridge Brickle, it's great to be back here. I don't know when it was the last time that I got to come. My name is Felipe Assis. I am the senior pastor of Crossbridge. And uh, it's great to hear um, from some of you the experience that you've had here at Crossbridge Brickle and how you found a family, how you found a community, how you're growing spiritually. Thankful to God uh, for you guys. It's sort of the same sort of the same feeling that the Apostle Paul had towards this church in the city of Thessalonica, a church that he had planted and labored. And then years later, after being away from that church, he writes this letter to the church, praising them for the way in which they were living out the gospel in the context of that pagan Greek city. Uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, he actually says to them, you know what? When I think about you, my heart fills with gratitude because you are my pride and my joy. You know, the Apostle Paul praises them for the way in which they lived out the gospel. They were becoming well known throughout the region uh, for how they were living out the gospel. Their quality of life was apparent to, to many who knew of them. And so this is why this series is entitled The Good Life. The Good Life. We're pursuing the good life that God has for us. Um, we should not be satisfied uh, with the lives that we're living, but in pursuit of that which God has in store for us. What God has for you is better than what you have for yourself. Do you agree with that? See, we all have plans for our lives. Uh, that involve our careers, that involve uh, romance and relationships. Uh, we all have our own plans, but I want to tell you tonight that whatever plan you have for yourself, that you think it's great and good, God has a better one. And he wants to reveal that to you. And uh, it's, it's seen in the life of this church and in Paul's instruction to them. You know, he says, you know, when I think of you and I pray about you, I see that these three things that are at your foundation. He says that in chapter 1, that there is faith, hope, and love. And because there's faith, hope, and love in your foundation, you know, it has obviously affected the way in which you have lived out your lives. And so we get now here into chapter 4. And uh, the Apostle Paul is, is reminding them of the implications of a life that's founded in faith, hope, and love. And so in this chapter, and, you know, for the next several weeks, we're going to look into this. Uh, the last part of the chapter, he says, you know, if faith, hope, and love is at your foundation, uh, you will know how to cope with suffering and pain and even death. Then in the middle section, he says, you will uh, have a sense of purpose and satisfaction and joy in your work, in your vocation. That's going to be next week's sermon. But... He starts off this chapter saying, if hope, faith, and love are at the foundation of your lives, it will affect your sexuality as well. So tonight we get to talk about sex. And I uh, hope you can stay awake, all right? Um, when, when the Apostle Paul uh, teaches to the church in Thessalonica about sex, um, he speaks, number one, of the goodness of sex, it's direct. Uh, number two, he indirectly speaks of the misery of sex. Many of, our, many of us find ourselves in um, when it comes to our sexuality, broken sexuality. 
But then at the very end, he offers hope for our sexuality. So tonight, as we think about this topic of sex, we're going to look at the goodness of sex, the misery of sex, and the hope for sex. First, uh, the goodness of sex. Uh, and before, before I get started here, I want to start with this assumption. As we talk about this topic at church, like because usually our sex conversations do not take place at church, right? Um, although here at Crossbridge, at least once a year, I like to preach and deliver a sermon on sex. Uh, that was actually Carter's first sermon here at Crossbridge Brickle. When we were trying to figure out whether he was the right pastor or not, I said, let me see. Hey, your sermon this Sunday is going to be on the topic of sex. I'm like, what? My first? Yeah, yeah, your first sermon. Let's see how you, let's see how you go. And uh, he, he did a phenomenal job. And he preached this morning at, uh, at our campus in Key Biscayne. And I heard that he did a great job as well. So uh, let, let's establish this, okay? As we talk about this topic that we usually don't talk about it at church, that whenever the Bible talks about any subjects, especially on the subject of sex, let's start with this assumption that God wants what's best for you, that God is not against you, that God is for you, that God wants you to succeed, that God wants you to flourish. In fact, look at the very first verse that we read, verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God. He's saying, this is what God wants for you. I want you to take this as the will of God for you. God wants what's best for you. Now, I'm a father of four, and uh, I have a 13-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 4-year-old, and a 1-year-old, okay? So there's a big gap between two and three. So I've, I'm, I've sort of, uh, you know, I've gone through all the phases. I'm living through the teenage years right now, and it's obviously a challenge to Beth and I. Uh, but regardless of how old your kids are, okay, and, and you were a kid one day, maybe you're saying that this doesn't relate to me because I, I have no children, but you were a kid one day, and you know what I'm going to talk, t- tell you about, and that is that, you know, as a parent, in order for your kids to flourish, right, out of love, you have to place restrictions on them. And so what that means is that if, if you're my teenage daughter, you can't come home at night at any time that you would like, okay? Um, I have to drive you. I have to pick you up. Uh, that's, that's how it works. If you're going to a friend's house, that's how it works. You're going to a movie theater. Uh, the, the last time that she decided to go to the movie theater, I found out that there were boys involved, so I went myself. And I sat, in the, I sat in the back row, and I was just like this. And the boys were looking back, was like, man, your dad is kind of scary. So that's right, that's right. And I do jujitsu too. Uh, so be careful, be careful. Um, I'm, I'm watching every move. There's a restriction. And she's like, hey, Dad, why do you have to do that? It's because I love you, right? And you have little ones. They can't eat cookies and candies all day long, even though they want to. You go to grocery stores or stores, they want to pick stuff and take it home, and you say, no, no, I can't buy this for you. And usually when you apply restrictions to your kids, what do they say? Well, you hate me, you don't love me, right? Those are the type of things that they said. You've said that to your parents before. And so I, I, I want to establish that because God wants what's best for you, not because he wants to manipulate you, control you, restrain your freedom, but because he wants you to have more freedom. He wants you to have his life, enjoy the quality of his life. In fact, if you continue verse 3, he says, For this is the will of God. What is it? Your sanctification. That is his will for you, your sanctification. Okay, let's talk a little bit about sanctification because this is a big theological word. What is sanctification? I think that the simplest way to define the word sanctification is the 
process by which every Christian must go through in order to become like Christ. You are saved through Christ. That is your justification. You're saved through Christ, not by your works, but through Christ. Because of what Christ has done, you have been justified. And now you are becoming like Christ. This becoming like Christ is called sanctification. Now, this is a process, okay? And um, some of us are further ahead. Some of us are further behind. Some of us are going faster in that process. Some of us are slower in that process. But this process will not be completed until you die. So when Christians die, we say that they are now glorified. That process of sanctification has been completed, and they're now enjoying the full life of God in the presence of Christ, in the presence of the Father and the Son. Okay. Now, the idea is as you are going through this process of sanctification, more and more you're experiencing the life of God in your life, the good life, right? The more you become like Christ, the more you experience the life of God. And God wants that for you in every single area of your life, including the area of sexuality. Now, here's a sort of a dirty little secret. And that is that even though you probably didn't know this you know, tonight, but even though you might not be a Christian... Even though you may not be a religious person, you are pursuing this, want it or not. This is, this is like what your heart longs for, this ultimate, good, abundant life of God. You're looking for this. You're looking for it, want it or not. And sex is one of the ways in which you try to find this life. G.K. Chesterton used to say this, that... A man who knocks on a brothel's door is looking for God. A man who knocks on a brothel's door, what he's really looking for is this abundant life that you can only get from God. But that's his way of trying to find it. You know, uh, famous writer Albert Camus, he, he, he said something along these lines uh, as well. He reflects upon his uh, party life and his wild life back in the days. And, and he concludes the following. He, he makes an amazing statement. He says this, Because I long for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. I slept in bliss, but awake in the bitter taste of the mortal state. Because I was, I was looking for eternity and the wildlife that I lived, that at the end of the day, that's what I wanted, but I would wake up in the morning and I would taste death. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is, the way in which you welcome this good life, this abundant life of God into your life is by abstaining from sexual immorality. That's the next thing that he says right there in verse 3. And the word in Greek that he uses for sexual immorality is the word porneia. So let's also define what the word porneia is about. The word porneia means this. Any sexual activity that happens without, outside the confines of marriage. So, you know, write the word marriage in the center and put a circle around it. 
And every sexual activity that happens outside of those boundaries, the Bible calls this pornea. Jesus uses this word in Matthew 19 when he talks about sexuality and marriage. And Paul uses it here in 1 Thessalonians. He also uses it in 1 Corinthians, right? So sex before marriage, pornea. Sex with someone that's not your spouse after, you're ma- after you've been married, it's pornea as well. By yourself sex, it's pornea. Any sexual activity outside the confines of marriage, it's considered pornea. It's considered bad sex. And, and so what he's saying is, if you abstain from that, you welcome the life of heaven into your life. If you can't restrain from that, if you can't, uh, if, if, if you can't uh, stop doing pornea, you are welcoming the life of hell into your life. And that obviously leads us to point two, which is the misery of sex. Uh, the Apostle Paul has some very serious words in verse 8. Look at what he says. This, these are the concluding verses. Uh, this is the concluding verse that we read. He says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What well, the Apostle Paul is saying, he's saying, Look, this is not my opinion. This is not my advice to you. This is God's design for you. And you may disagree with me in statements that I may make, and you may have a different opinion uh, from mine in particular matters, but when it comes to sex, this is God's design, and if you go against it, you cannot expect anything else but breakdown. If you start to live outside of God's design for you, especially in this area, this will destroy you, this will destroy the people that you engage in sexual activity with. And moreover, and that's why he's so concerned when he writes this in verse 6, he says, in fact, you will destroy our community as well. See, because we think that uh, um, you know, sex only affects the two people that are engaged in it. And that is not true. Think about this. Let's say, let, let, let's, let, let's think of a marriage and, and where one of the parties has committed adultery and because of that, you know, the marriage falls apart. It doesn't just affect them, it affects their children, it affects their friends, their circle of friends, it affects their church. Sometimes, you know, when that happens in our churches, people say, well, I'm not going to attend that church anymore because I don't want to see that person there on Sundays, right? They'll find somewhere else to go. It, and then relationships that have been formed begin to fall apart. It's horrible. It's horrible. Every time that you decide to do something outside of God's design for you, you can, you can expect complete breakdown. Now, let's pause right here because some of you may be listening to this uh, and, you, and you may be saying, now here's the problem that I have with Christianity. It's primitive. It's restrictive. It's infringing in my freedom. Who are you, right, to tell me who I can sleep or not sleep with? That's my own business. That's none of your business, especially if I am not hurting anyone. Okay. Now, now, now let's say that you're uh, having consensual sex with people, and obviously it's mutual, 
and there's no commitment there. And in and, and your understanding, no one is being hurt. But I want to show you, based on what the Apostle Paul is teaching here, there's, there's actually damage being done underneath the surface that, in a way that you may not realize. You know why? Because sex communicates. See, God created sex for souls to communicate. When, when two people are having sex, their souls are having a conversation, right? It's a nonverbal language. What you're saying to one another when you're having sex, want it or not, you know, now you may be quiet during sex, but your souls are communicating and your souls are saying to one another, only you, number one, only you, only you. You are the only person for me. I am committed to you, forever you. I am with you till the end, till death do us part. That's what the souls are saying to one another when sex is happening and taking place. And then lastly, all that's mine is yours. We're not just being one physically here, but you know we're one completely in every single sphere of life. That's what your souls are saying to one another. And therefore, here's the problem. When you are having sex with someone that you did not make a full life commitment to, the talk in bed does not match the walk. Okay? The bed talk does not match the walk. And that creates confusion in your soul, and it completely be and it begins a process of damaging your soul in a way that you don't realize. But if you keep repeating and doing that, not only will your soul be damaged, but you'll begin to lose your humanity. And that's why Paul says here, you know, I want you to honor one another because when you do this, you end up dishonoring one another. See, sex was not made for self-gratification. God does not design sex for self-gratification. People are not a means to an end so that you can be gratified. Sex was for self-giving. See, we get these two things wrong. We get them backwards. See, sex was a means to the person so that you can become one with that person so that when you're having sex with someone that you're fully committed in all of life, you're communicating to them, you're renewing those vows every time that you're in bed together. It's a covenant renewal exercise to build intimacy and oneness between human beings. It's a beautiful thing. But when the bed talk doesn't match the walk, it damages us. And you keep doing over and over again. And you know what this begins to do and why it destroys your humanity? Because it destroys your commitment apparatus. Your ability to commit and to trust others. Right? Because you're thinking you know, all men are like that and all women are like that. It, it begins to affect the way in which you relate to other human beings. And some of us here tonight have been deeply affected by our past sexual experiences. Disabling us to trust. Disabling us to give and to believe. Like we live in a culture. Think about this. We live in a culture that's skeptical of commitment. When you talk about marriage, people are like, yeah. People are skeptical of commitment. We are deeply wounded. Our culture is deeply wounded. We are living, especially during these days, like a miserable reality, right? The ultimate expression of what 
what, what, what the misery of sex looks like. You know, I was um, uh, reading about a month or so ago this uh, interview on GQ magazine, okay, came out, and I, I went to it because everyone was talking about it in the Twitter sphere, but it was that, uh, the actor that plays Superman, Henry Cavill, and they asked him to make a comment on the whole Me Too movement and how it personally affected him, and he said this, because then it's like, well, I, I don't want to go up and, and talk to her because I'm going to be called a rapist or something. He continued, so you're like, forget it, I'm going to call an ex-girlfriend instead and then just go back to a relationship which never really worked, but it's way safer than casting myself into the fires of hell. He said, you know, it, it, there, there's so much, there's so, 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 so many people, so, so many stories out there, people that have been wounded by this, that I'm afraid of approaching a female and being misinterpreted by, with my intentions. And there are women, because they've been victims of that, saying, I, I, don't, I can't trust men, I, I can't work with certain people. You know, uh, sometimes interacting with, with a man, you know, triggers something in you and, 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 you, and you just refrain yourself from, from you know, pursuing uh, any type of relationship with, with someone of the opposite sex because you carry deep wounds. You have become cynical about it, right? And, you know, he's saying, it's interesting, his comment, he's saying, it's easier to go back to a relationship that has failed, okay, than to put myself through this hell. Think about that. And, and what I want you to understand is, the correlation between the state in which we find ourselves in our culture, you know, like this whole narrative of I am free, who are you to tell me who I can sleep or not sleep with, especially if I'm not hurting anyone, this language in our culture and the state in, in which we find ourselves is not a coincidence. It's because of the sexual ethics that we have chosen that we are this way today. In fact, in fact I believe that there is a direct correlation between our state of loneliness, which has become a huge problem in the United States, it's a, it's a national concern. You know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in the Atlantic, a couple months ago, there was an article published on loneliness, and it said that, you know, in Britain, it's a huge issue right now. And uh, the British government has appointed a minister of loneliness. Because it's much easier for you to stay at home and... And, uh, and interact with someone through a screen, right, than for you to pursue real relationships with people that have a broken story just like you. It's, 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 we're afraid, we're terrified of that. There's a direct correlation, guys, between the quality of life in which we live nowadays and our choice when it comes to the ethics of sex. But, you know, look... The Bible offers hope, offers hope to our broken stories, offers hope to our longings for intimacy, for both married and singles. You know, in, in, the, in the very first couple verses, which we did not print and we did not read, the Apostle Paul says this, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us 
how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ the Apostle Paul is saying look the basis by which I am teaching you this is because of the relationship that I share with Jesus that you have shared with Jesus we're just reminding ourselves of that basis for by which we relate to one another it's through Jesus Christ now now put that aside and, and, and think about this you know some of you may say to me like you know I'm married pastor and I've tried to respect this biblical boundary when it comes to sex I have not had sex outside of marriage yet I'm still miserable sex in my marriage sucks okay what do you do with that if you're a single person, I've had single people come up to me and they say, hey, I've also respected this instruction. I've also respected uh, this boundary. And, you know, I, I, I am abstaining from sex until I find a spouse, but I still feel empty. There's still a lack of joy in my life. What do you do with that? And again, I want to validate your desire for intimacy and joy. And if you're married to have great, a great sex life, right? And for you that are single, uh, I want to validate your desire, right, to find a spouse so that you can enjoy this. But what if you never find a spouse? Then what happens? And to the married couple, look, see, the answer is not just have more sex. I remember a sermon series by a pastor. He was preaching on sex, and he wanted his congregation uh, to commit, the couples to commit to having sex for 30 days every day, right? And as much as I would encourage couples to have that type of like rhythm in their sex life, that does not solve the problem. Your sex life can still suck, even if there's continuity, right? Even if, if, if there's a lot of it. And, 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 and listen, I, I want to say to you that, you know, the problem really is that you know, the, the reason why, if you're single and, and you're living by these boundaries and, and you're still uh, unhappy and feel empty, and if you're married and you're respecting these boundaries and uh, you still lack joy, it's because you have looked at the love partner as a savior. And in fact, this is the problem of our culture, that we have elevated the love partner as the one that's going to come and rescue us from ourselves you know, just, just think about all the songs uh, that have been written and, uh, you know, the movies and the Netflix series and how many of them, you know, carry this deep theme of romance, right? We're obsessed with romance because we believe that our lives do not have any meaning unless we find romance. And, you know, in the context of marriage, what I tell couples is the reason why uh, even though you may be respecting this biblical instruction and still not enjoying what's happening and taking place is because you have had the wrong view of your spouse. You have looked at your spouse as someone that would uh, provide you uh, fulfillment for this longing that your soul carries. And because maybe they have disappointed, you know, it only takes about like a month or so after you're married to realize that your spouse is no Prince Charming, right? 
Because you're now able to see them under the scope every single hour of the day and the flaws get exposed one another. You can no longer hide. There's things that you can still hide, but you know, a lot of stuff's still gonna come out. Like you can't really hide who you are. Okay? And and, and out of that disappointment, you know, that has affected your relationship. And 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 so what both married people and single people need is really a spouse that is not out of this world. You're never going to find someone that will fully meet right, the desires of your heart and your soul out there. You need someone from another world, and you need Jesus. See, that's why the Apostle Paul says the solution to this problem is not having more sex or not finding a spouse, but being in a deep, intimate relationship with Christ. Okay, That's where the hope is found. If you have Christ... You have the ability to pursue intimacy with your spouse, even though your spouse may be someone that has hurt you and has drifted away from you. Because when you understand the gospel, right? Some of us look at our spouse and say, man, God, please help me with the spouse from hell that you have given me. It's always the other. And in your relationship with God, who's the spouse from hell? You are the spouse from hell. Okay, and Jesus has faithfully loved you while you were drifting away from him. Actually, while you were still against him, he loved and pursued you. And he gives proof of his love for you. How? By giving up his body, his naked body to you, and then by putting in you the life of his spirit. That's what he says right there in verse 8, the last thing. The one who has given us his spirit, the life of God is placed in us. When we believe, when we trust that Jesus died the death we should have died, when, he dem- when we believe that that was the ultimate demonstration of God's love for me on the cross, when I take that and receive that, you know, that, that fills my heart because now I, I, I have the full proof that in fact I am loved by God. And, and how about singles? Let's say you, you, you may never find a spouse. Are you, are you condemned to a life without the delight and the intimacy that sex can bring? No, you're not. You know, because one of the gifts, and I want you to think about this, okay? One of the gifts that comes with our relationship with Christ is the body of Christ. You know, see, like, Bodies are necessary for, for sex. And, you know, number one, that tells us that bodies are not bad, that bodies are good. God created the bodies as well. There's a lot of religious traditions that say that the body is bad. Not for God. The body is good. And they're necessary for you to experience intimacy and oneness in sex. And so it is in your relationship with God. And, 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 and when you receive Jesus as Savior, when you enter into an intimate relationship with Christ, He gives us His body, which is the church. And that is the hope for single people as well. That you can experience the delight and the joys of intimacy in the context of the faith community. Because our bond here, see, our bond here. Uh, the, 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 the level of intimacy that we have and, and the bond that we share is not because of affinity, because we, we, we like uh, cars or, uh, you know, we love to work out, okay, or we're in the same profession together. Obviously, we have these bonds, but the ultimate bond among us 
is Jesus Christ, who has made us his body and has inhabited us with his Holy Spirit. So there is hope for you. And, and listen, when we commit to live out this sexual ethic together, okay, we begin not only to experience the level of intimacy that no spouse is able to give us, the delight that no spouse, no earthly spouse can give us, but we become now a countercultural community that you know, makes Christianity look very attractive and, and begin to draw people to this life of God as well. You know, the early Christians, when, uh, when they came around, uh, the Greco-Roman uh, practice and ethics when it came to sexuality was very different than theirs. You know, there was a, a church father by the name of Tertullian in the fourth century who uh, was, happened to be a lawyer, and he even went up to the Roman courts to defend Christianity, to say, hey, don't persecute Christians, don't kill Christians, because Christians are actually good for the empire. You know, and, and, and in, one of his, in one of his writings, right, to Roman authorities, in defending Christianity, he says this, we are one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another, and all things are common among us but our wives. You know, what was the, what was the Greco-Roman sexual ethic? Was that, you know, I am everyone's lover. I am everyone's lover. But my belongings, my possessions, my table, that's just mine. All right? Christians came along and they reversed that. They said... My belongings, my table, my possessions, my gifts are everyone's, but my spouse is for myself. Right. Which model you think builds better communities? The Roman model, the Roman sexual ethic, or the Christian sexual ethic? And because of that, because they were committed to living that out together, they turned the Roman Empire upside down. And this is our hope as a church here. Guys, we're here to be a countercultural community in this ultra-sexualized city, the city of Miami. But we will not, look, we will not be compelling to people. We will not be attractive to people if our sexual ethics is the same as theirs. We must live counterculturally. But we will only live that way once we understand the gospel but when we do, when we do, we can be powerful instruments in God's hands for the change and transformation of our city. And people will not only find more delight, but they will uh, find intimacy in that as well and fix the problem of loneliness, okay? So that is my hope for you. Let's pray.